Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. The holiday season is here, and with it comes candle season. Have you ever stopped to think about what ingredients are in a candle? Have you ever seen a candle with the ingredients on its label? Most likely you haven't. The Fair Packaging and Labeling Act gives fragrance manufacturers a trade secret status, so they legally do not have to share their ingredients with you. Synthetic fragrance can contain up to 3,000 different chemicals, some of which are endocrine disruptors and respiratory irritants. Some even contain chemicals that are known carcinogens. If you do not want to give up candles forever, I have a swap for you. I love Fontana Candle Company for their 100% natural and independently certified non-toxic candles, wax melts, and room sprays. They use only pure beeswax, coconut oil, and essential oils in their candles, and they put all of their ingredients right on the label. Fontana was the first candle to be certified non-toxic by Made Safe. I love that they have my favorite seasonal scents like cinnamon orange clove, peppermint twist, and spice latte. Use podcast at fontanacandlecompany.com for 15% off your order. Again, that's podcast at fontanacandlecompany.com. Colin O'Brady is a 10-time world record-breaking explorer, speaker, entrepreneur, and expert on mindset. His feats include the world's first solo, unsupported, and fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica, speed records for the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits, and the first human-powered ocean row across Drake Passage. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Impossible First, and now... The 12-Hour Walk, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, and Unlock Your Best Life. Welcome everyone to the show. I am really honored today to have Colin here. As you heard, he has accomplished some amazing adventures, amazing records that I am really excited to talk to you about today. So thank you so much, Colin, for being here today. My pleasure. So fun to be here with you. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll dive into all the things you've accomplished? Yeah. So, uh, God, where to begin? I was born in Olympia, Washington. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, but I was born in Olympia, Washington on a, on a hippie commune, actually born at home. I, uh, I know you have a big family. I'm actually the youngest of seven. So I uh, come from a big family as well, a blended family. Um, but I grew up with all my siblings from a very young age. So a big house, five older sisters actually, and, uh, have, you know, progressed through life in interesting ways. I, you know, now as I think you probably said at the top of this, uh, have 10 world records, most known for, you know, some big world records in the world of adventure, including becoming the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo and uh, various other expeditions like climb Mount Everest with my wife and, and things of that nature. So it's uh, it's been a fun, a fun journey for sure. Um, you know, for me, it's a curiosity of pushing my body and my mind and really cultivating the power that I believe all of us, um, you know, have inside of us, this uh, deep uh, resilience, the strength that uh, not everyone necessarily wants to go climb Everest or walk across Antarctica, but I think every person, um, you know, desires to unlock their fullest potential. And I think we all really have a deep capacity to do that. So I have a really deep passion with um all of my work, including my newest book, The 12 Hour Walk, to really inspire others to uh, find that within themselves and really unlock their best lives. 
Well, you're incredible, and I want to ask you about those different records and adventures. But first, let's start back when you were 22. You had a life-changing experience traveling the world. Can you share what happened? Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid, I always kind of dreamed of traveling around the world. Um, I um, didn't uh, have a lot of money when I was a kid. So I painted houses every summer with kind of this dream. You know, one day when I graduate from college, I'm going to, you know, take a backpack and a surfboard and travel around the world. So I held that goal in my mind all those summers, painting houses, talking away a few thousand dollars here and there. I uh, was a swimmer in college. I ended up, uh, I went to Yale University, got an economics degree there. And most of my friends were taking, you know, big, serious jobs. And I instead took that backpack and a surfboard and a few thousand dollars and went and traveled around the world by myself, uh, full shoestring budget. You know, I was, uh, you know, sleeping on couches, hitchhiking around. I was in um, New Zealand, surfing through Australia, through Southeast Asia. Um, I actually met my now wife uh, at the beginning of that trip in uh, 2007. So we've been together 15 years now, but I met her in Fiji on that trip. So that was a, a win right out of the gate. But um, yeah, as you mentioned, sort of a you know, tragedy befell me at one point on that trip, I was in Thailand on a small beach in rural Thailand and there were some people jumping a flaming jump rope and, you know, being 22 years old at the time without maybe a fully formed prefrontal cortex, I thought to myself, gee, that looks like fun. I should give that a shot. And, uh, not, not a great idea. Um, in an instant, my life changed, you know, that rope, it was soaked in kerosene. It wrapped around my legs, lit my body completely on fire to my neck. Thankfully, survival mode kicked in when I needed it most, and I jumped into the ocean, which was a few steps away to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body was severely burned, predominantly my legs um, and my feet. And I was in rural Thailand. I was actually on an island in the Gulf of Thailand. So really very little medical, proper medical facilities. I was in like a one room nursing station, you know, no ambulance ride. I had a moped ride down a dirt path to this little shack. Um, I underwent eight surgeries in rural Thailand. And, uh, it, it was a horrible, uh, experience and the, the physical pain was of course immense, but, uh, the emotional pain I think was even worse when the doctor walked in. I remember day four, day five, he walks in, he says to me, Hey, look, Colin, you'll probably never walk again normally. Wow. And my heart just, just sank, you know, but, uh, I know, I know you're a mother and I know a lot of your listeners are mothers. So the, the true heroine of this story is my mother, uh, incredible strong woman that she is. She came and found me on the other side of the world, uh, five or so days into this ordeal. She walked into my hospital room and I know now, um, you know, as a parent, what she must feel like seeing me, you know, in this hopeless state, she admits now that she was crying in the hallways, pleading with the doctors for any semblance of good news, but she never actually showed me that fear. You know, instead, um, she actually walked into my hospital room every single day with a huge smile on her face. And this, this air of positivity kind of daring me to dream about the future and inspiring me with just this love and positivity. Uh, I, I call this concept now, my new book, the 12 hour walk, I call it a possible mindset. I kind of define that as an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. She encouraged me in that moment to dream without limits. You know, what could you do if you wanted? Could you do anything when you get out of here? What would it be? And I closed my eyes to visualize. And I said, yeah, this might sound ridiculous, but I just visualized myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And I'd never raced triathlon before. And here I am in this hospital bed. And the doctors tell me I'll never walk again normally. My mother could have easily been like, yeah, you know, I said, set a goal, but maybe, you know, something a little more realistic. Right. Uh, but instead, she actually said to me, she's like, great, that's your goal. And in fact, you should start working on it right now. And she yells over to the doctor. She goes, hey, doc, doc, 
my son's training for a triathlon. Can you bring him in some weights? And I've got this picture of me. I'm lifting these 10 pound dumbbells. I'm bandaged from the waist down in a rural Thai hospital. And the Thai doctor's looking at me like, what is this stupid American kid doing? I'm like, doc, I'm training for a triathlon. So fast forward to the you know, kind of end of the story. I uh, eventually got released from the Thai hospital, but I've been there for a couple of months. I was placed in a wheelchair. Um, I was carried on and off the plane. I still didn't take a single step before I got back to the United States. And I was in my mother's kitchen um, and she kind of taught me how to walk again, one step at a time. And all through this recovery, all through all this uh, physical therapy that I had to go through to get my legs back under me, I was imagining racing a triathlon. And just 18 months after being burned in this fire, I eventually moved to Chicago, took a job out there and signed up for the Chicago triathlon. And a year and a half after being burned in the fire, a year and a half after being told I would never walk again normally. And with just deep, deep love and guidance from my mother, every step of the way, that entire year and a half, I signed up for Chicago triathlon. I raced the Chicago triathlon. I finished the Chicago triathlon. And then to my complete and utter surprise, I got to the finish line. It turned out that I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon, placing first out of nearly 5,000 people on the day. Wow. That is incredible. What an amazing story. And your mother is an amazing woman. Oh my goodness. She is one that all mothers should look up to. That is just incredible. All that she did for you and good for her for just loving you and giving you that mindset, teaching you that mindset of limitless possibilities. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it made all the difference. And, you know, when I look back on that story, you know, to me, it's not a story about, oh, wow, I just, it turns out I'm an amazing athlete or something like that. Like that's not at all the essence of that story for me. The essence is I go back to that Thai hospital. I go back to that moment of those deep setbacks, the biggest setback I'd faced in my young life at that point and realize that there was a decision. And if I had left been up to my left up to my own devices, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here with you. I certainly wouldn't be sitting here with 10 world records and the things that I've gone on to do since then. My life would be completely different. Um, and first and foremost, thank God for an incredible mother to teach me this, you know, really important lesson in the depths of despair. And it just goes to show, like I, you know, fundamentally believe I don't care, you know, who you are, you know, super wealthy, poor, young, old, you know, depending, you know, it doesn't matter your circumstance. Life is hard sometimes. Like it's hard, right? In in all different ways. And in those difficult moments, there's a lot of things we can't control. You know, I, you know, I couldn't go back in a time machine and not jump the rope once I was in the hospital, right? There's all sorts of things I can't control, but you can control how you react in that moment. And that's really what my mother, you know, really illuminated for me, which is like, she wasn't trying to sugarcoat the situation. She wasn't trying to say, oh no, this is going to be fine. She was like, this is terrible, but you get to choose now what you do with this. Um, and so it's in those moments that we can choose and react. And, and so much of, of what I love to share with the world is about mindset. You know, I love to say the most important muscle any of us have is the six inches between our ears. And that shift of that mindset that my mother helped walk me through in that hospital room, you know, has made all the difference for me. And I ultimately believe for all of us that we're sitting on reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things, to, to lean in when things get difficult, to overcome, you know, significant challenges. But I do really fundamentally believe it starts with how we react in the face of difficult challenges. So much good information. So if you're teaching about this mindset, along with the mindset, though, goes hard work because it wasn't easy just to be able to start walking again and then running and swimming and doing everything for a triathlon. So is it first the mindset and then also a second mindset of this is going to be hard? 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think that, yeah, like you said, it really starts, in my opinion, you know, with the mind, you know, without that, you know, sort of none of the rest of that matters. You know, I know you you, you talk a lot uh, on your show about, you know, daily habits. Um, and ultimately, those things are physical representations, but those things start with your mind, like, oh, I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy healthier food, or I'm going to prepare healthier meals, or I'm going to, you know, start exercising, or yep, you know, I'm going to, I've got a bunch of young kids running around, sleep's really tough, but I got to figure out how to prioritize sleep. Of course, all those things in the end translate into action, right? But those start with making some convicted thought in your mind. And so I think that is really the root core of any of those actions in your case, you know, bring up me, of course, I did have to then get out of that wheelchair, walk, train, go to the gym every day, swim, bike, run, et cetera, to prepare for that triathlon. But that's certainly all of those sort of physical representations of that started um, with a shift of mindset. Okay, so I have a question for you about unlimited possibilities. So raising kids, you know, sometimes the kids' dreams are, oh, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be an NFL player. And I'll hear some parents say like, oh, maybe we shouldn't let them dream that big because it's not a reality. So let's let them dream within boundaries of reality. What do you say to that? You know, I, I, I'm a, a much more belief in, in the limitless possibilities. I'll, I'll give you an example from my childhood. So when I was seven years old, uh, 1992, I was watching the Olympics. It was the Barcelona Olympics on television. And, you know, like I said, my family was, didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. So the idea of going to Barcelona, Spain might've been as you know far-fetched as going to Mars or something like that. And we're watching on television and the swimming comes on. And I've become really captivated with the swimming and particularly one swimmer, an American swimmer by the name of Pablo Morales, um, who was the world record holder in the hundred meter butterfly. Um, for whatever reason, probably because NBC did some amazing, you know, backstory on this guy's life or something like that. But I was like hooked and I was like just on the edge of my seat. And then I watched Pablo Morales, seven years old, win the hundred butterfly gold medal. And there's a gold medal ceremony standing there, you know, the stars and stripes banner coming down. He's got his hand over his heart um, and they give him the gold medal. And I say to my mom, I said, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be an Olympic swimmer. And my mother said to me, great. Like, I believe in you at that point. I, you know, had done a little bit of swimming at like the local pool, but it's not like I'm seven years old, you know, and she took it a step further to make it even more grounded in reality. She says, well, how old is Pablo Morales? I think at the time he was like 25 years old and I was seven. She goes, okay, so what year will it be when you're that age? And what are all the steps that he went to get there? She goes, okay, so that'll be the 2008 or the 2012 Olympics. Like, you know, it's 1992, right? You're like, you're like for a kid, like that might as well a million miles away, you know, 20 right. years in the future. No, well, what would the first step be? Oh, let's, you know, get on the local swim team or whatever. And so she allowed me to dream about that. And here's the thing. I went on to swim all the way through my childhood and kept that dream alive. Uh, I swam through high school. Uh, I ultimately, as I mentioned, swam at Yale University and I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer and I was a great swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer, et cetera, but I didn't make the Olympics. I didn't make the Olympics. And then I went on to burn myself in this fire and think about this triathlon. And after winning the Chicago triathlon, I actually quit my day job and became a professional triathlete. I raced triathlon professionally for about six years, 25 countries, six continents. My explicit goal was to make the Olympics. I was like a second shot at the Olympics. I didn't make it in swimming. Can I make it in triathlon? And I spent six years of my life trying to make the Olympics in triathlon. And again, great triathlete, you know, ranked in the top, you know, five or 10 American triathletes was in the Olympic, you know, program training with the Olympians, you know, whatever three guys make the team. 
I didn't make the Olympics. I didn't make it in 2012 and I didn't make it in 2016. So did I fail? Did I fail? Like, should my mother have not allowed me to have like that dream for 20 years? I spent 20 years of my life, literally from 1992 Olympics all the way through 2015, when I retired as a professional triathlete, trying to make the Olympics and I failed twice. But here's the thing. Then after that, I decided I wanted to keep pushing my body and all of those reps of those 20 years of trying and striving and learning about myself and learning about my mindset and pushing through. And now I sit here with 10 world-class world records, things that no one in history had ever thought possible that I've accomplished. I wouldn't have accomplished any of them had I not gone through those 20 years of trying to make the Olympics. And so for me, you know, going back to your original question, should you allow your kids to dream without limits? I mean, it's somewhat of what we've heard it said before. It's, you know, shoot for the moon because if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. I don't see any reason why not to strive valiantly, to strive greatly. I'd rather strive and come up to short than to say, you know what? Don't even dare to take the dream at all because it's not worth it. You're not going to get there. I love that mindset. I love that theory because you were very successful. It didn't lead to the Olympics, but it was a different path of world records and things like that. And so I really appreciate all that you just said. So let's talk about some of those adventures that you have done. What if we start with the crossing Antarctica? Because this one I'm most interested about. Can you just tell the listeners more about this and what that entailed? Yeah, so... In 2018, I set myself the goal of becoming the first person in history to cross the entire continent of Antarctica solo. Uh, So of course, completely alone, unsupported, which means no resupplies of food or fuel, which means you get dropped off on the edge of the continent with all of your food, gear, supplies, and you're not going to see anyone. No one's going to resupply you throughout the entire time, which meant I was dragging a 375 pound sled behind me full of food and fuel to survive for a couple months out there on the ice. Um, It was nearly a thousand mile journey. And then unaided or also known as human powered. So some people have crossed the continent using kites or dogs or other ways to propel them. But this was just me, mano mi mano, pulling a sled, like kind of like the most primitive form of travel across Antarctica. And yeah, it was something that people had tried uh, many times over the years and no one had successfully achieved it. Um, People had died attempting this crossing. Um, People had run out of food and needed to be evacuated from remote parts of Antarctica. And eventually I was uh, the first person in history to, to complete it. It was a 54 day journey uh, alone on the ice, um, battling, you know, minus 40 degree temperatures and certainly uh, having a lot, a lot of setbacks along the way. You can dive into a little more of the details if you want, but uh, yeah, that's the, that's the rough outline. Well, I want to first know, what did your wife think of this? I would think I would tell my husband, no way you're not doing this. Yeah, my wife's incredible. Um, Her name's Jenna, and we have really built uh, our whole life uh, together, Um, not just, you know, our personal life, but our professional life as well. Um, You know, she was she was there with me through all the triathlon ups and downs. And then when I started out on doing these world records, she's also built them with me. So, you know, these these big dreams, uh, of course, also require a a lot of logistics, a lot of planning, a lot of fundraising, things of that nature. Um, We have also started a nonprofit and eventually have had uh, over a million students enrolled in our various programs. And so, you know, she's been the backbone of all of that. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, I want to go climb Mount Everest. I want to climb these mountains. I want to cross Antarctica or whatever. These things cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, trying to figure out how to build them and also tell those stories, right? Um, My Antarctica crossing ultimately had 2 billion earned media impressions. There was eight front page New York Times articles, Today Show, you name it, it's been covered by it. And that's not like just to pad my ego, but it's be able to share that story broadly. That's be 
able to inspire others through that journey and that pursuit. So we've been able to build a number of really successful uh, businesses and entrepreneurial ventures off the backside of that notoriety. And she's been there for all of it. But more than anything, she's, you know, been there uh, as, you know, my heart and soul um, and, and my number one supporter uh, through all of that. You know, I'll give you an example. So we're, uh, you know, we plan the whole expedition, you know, plan it for a year, do this big interview, you know, announce to the world, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. And as I'm getting ready to fly down there, another guy, this British explorer announces that he's also doing it at the same time as me. Uh, which I hadn't expected. And we've been both planning for a year, training for a year, but unbeknownst to each other. And so all of a sudden, this basically turns into a race. When I say the same time, oh, basically shoot. there's one season in Antarctica where you can do this, um, you know, and there's like one guy that has a plane that can drop you off on the edge of the frozen continent. It's not like there's like, you know, lots of different like options for logistics. And so we both had called the exact same guy. And so unbeknownst to us, we find ourselves sitting shoulder to shoulder on a cargo plane, flying to the edge of Antarctica to get dropped off, which is now not just racing history, but this is about to become a one-on-one race crossing the frozen continent, mano y mano, you know, a thousand oh, per, you know, a thousand wow. mile journey. So we both get dropped off and uh, we decide to get dropped off one mile apart from each other, equidistant from the first waypoint, but one mile apart from each other, just so we're not standing right next to each other when we start. And like I said, my sled was 375 pounds. And the reason for that is because, you know, you need as much food as you can, but really there's no way you can take enough food with you to survive this journey. You would need to have like five or 600 pounds of food and there's no way you could pull that. And so you have to make the decision to go like, I know I'm going to lose a ton of weight out here, you know, the 30, 40, 50 pounds by the end, you know, ribs sticking out, hips sticking out. Wow. I was burning about 10,000 calories a day and eating about 7,000. So it was, uh, you know, from day one, a big calorie deficit. But anyways, I, I strap into my sled on that first day and I start to try to pull my sled. And I can't pull it. I mean, I can pull it like 10 feet, 20 feet. And I stop, I've got a thousand miles to go and I'm like pulling it 10 feet and I'm like completely out of breath. An hour one in this journey, I'm so disappointed and so defeated because it just looks, seems so impossible that I start crying. I just start sobbing, but it's minus 30 degrees outside. And what happens when it's minus 30 degrees outside? Well, it turns out the tears, they freeze to your face, which is like the most pathetic feeling of all time. <laughs> the only thing I can think to do in this moment is to pick up my satellite phone and call home to my wife, Jenna. And so I call home to her on the satellite phone and she picks up the phone. She's like, why are you calling me so soon? You just started, you know, what's going on? And I explain the situation to her. And then she says, well, where's Lou? Who's the other God's British, British soldier named Captain Lou. And I look over to my right and Captain Lou's having no problems. He's just going strong, like a soldier in full march, just disappearing across the horizon. And I start crying more. I'm like, he's gone. The race is over. I can't even move my sled. You know, I'm out here. And there's been so many times like this. It's just one example where my wife has been, you know, my inner strength, my inner voice. I couldn't have done it without her. That's for sure. And similar to my mother in that Thai hospital. Whereas Jenna said two things to me. First thing she said to me is she goes, I want you to look around. What do you see? And I said, I don't know, like a bunch of white snow and ice, like a middle of Antarctica. What are you talking about? She's like, exactly. You're in Antarctica right now. She's like, you know how many people have sit on their couch somewhere or sit at the bar with their friends, you know, talking shit about like what they're going to do one day. One day I'm going to start this business. One day I'm going to travel to here or there. One day I'm going to start a family, One, you know, whatever. And they never actually do it. You're there. You actually have committed to doing it. So you, you have already gone, you know, infinitely further than almost anybody ever gets. So be proud of that. And then she goes, second of all, she goes, 
sounds to me like you're getting old. Cause I kept being like, but I'm never going to make it a thousand miles with I'm going too slow. And da, 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 da. she goes, forget about the thousand miles, forget about captain Lou, forget about this race. How far are you away from the first waypoint? So I have this GPS that marks these various waypoints along the way. And I look down, I'm half a mile from the first waypoint. You know, there's hundreds of waypoints throughout right. this long journey. And she goes, just get to the first waypoint. She's like, I don't care how long it takes you. I don't care if it's 10 steps at a time and you have to wait, but get to the first waypoint. Cause then you made it to the first one after that, we'll figure out the second, but forget about everything else. Just get to the first waypoint tonight. And I had to struggle to cover those half a mile, that first half mile, but I got there. And so again, I just share that as a, a one tiny little slice and sliver of the, the love and support that Jenna has given me over time. I, I say to her about this Antarctica crossing, cause there were so many other moments like that, where I was defeated in despair. I was afraid. I mean, I was alone for 54 days and she was the only person that I spoke to. And it's not like speaking to someone on a sat phone. It's like chatting to them on an iPhone. It's like delayed and crackly. And it's a couple minutes, maybe, you know, it's not like some long form. It's not like FaceTime or something like that. And I say to her, you know, it's a shame. It's just my name on the cover of this book or this world record. I was like, cause you walked across Antarctica too. I mean, she was really, I was like, the, the, the thing is, is you just didn't have to have the cold on your face. You know, she was there with me every, every, every step of the journey. And there's no doubt without her love and her support and her belief in me. And lastly, to close out that thought, you know, you said, ah, if my husband said this to me, I would tell him, ah, you, you should do that or whatever. You know, one thing that's beautiful, it's not, it's certainly not a criticism of anyone else's marriage is everyone, you know, has a different dynamic in their relationship. But one thing that I have a lot of gratitude for in my relationship, and I think I reflect that back on my wife as well, is she knows me and she knows like these types of things like really light me up and to say like, no, you're not going to do that thing but to be that like take, you know, from my core spirit and my core essence. And instead she is loving and supportive of that. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And, and I try to do the exact same to for her, the things that light her up in her spirit. What a great relationship you guys have and what an incredible woman she is to keep encouraging you and helping you along and helping you with the mindset out there, out on the ice. Because um, to me, it seems like you just were overwhelmed with this whole huge distance you had to go. And instead she's you know, saying take one little step at a time, which is really similar to life. Like if we are in a hard trial or a hard time, when we look at the whole picture, sometimes it's just too hard to accomplish. But if we take it one little step at a time, we can do great things. And so that sounds like what happened on the ice. You just did one little step at a time until you got to the finish line. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I eventually did pass the other guy and I eventually got to the other side first after 54 days, but exactly like you said, it's, um, and life is so much this way. It's all really about breaking it down into small incremental parts. When I was in 2016, a couple of years before that Antarctica crossing, uh, I summited Everest as part of this world record for something called the Explorers Grand Slam. And I was on the summit that day, uh, you know, my child childhood dream was to climb Mount Everest and I looked down, um, and I'm on the summit. And there's, you know, ice and rocks and whatever. And there's a couple of little pebbles up there on the summit. And I reach down, I pick up this small little stone, tiny little rock, and I put it in my pocket. And I, for years, have carried that rock in my pocket as a reminder of exactly what you just said, which is, you know, you spend all this time, like dream about my numbers for decades. And then you get up there, you see the tallest mountain in the world. And it's like all these steps, it seems impossible, whatever. And you get up to the summit 
and the top of the mountain, there's still just a bunch of small rocks. And the small rock for me that I carry around is this representation that even Mount Everest, like even the biggest mountain in the world, or, you know, put that as the, what your Mount Everest might be a large goal of some kind or something like that can be broken down to its smallest part. That's just a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, many steps leading to the summit. And when I get overwhelmed by the enormity of a large project or a large goal or something in my personal life that feels like it's, oh, this is going to take years to build and develop and create, you know, whatever that is, it's like, oh, what can I do today? What can I do this hour? What small step can I take? Right. And I think, you know, just all sorts of things uh, are like that, right? You've got the, you know, the take parenting, you know, something very close to your heart. You know, I mean, you know, holding a little baby in your arms, you know, three months old and it's waking you up every single night. And you're like, 20 more years of this. Like, how am I going to get through that? And it's like, what can I do today? What can I do tonight? What, how can I show up for, you know, this child that I love so much, you know, in this moment? And that moment connects to the next moment, the next moment, the next moment. And that's the, the stacking um, of those rocks in those moments. I love that analogy because we all have mountains in our lives or big goals or big trials, things like that. So that's a great analogy. I want to go back to crossing of Antarctica. We'll come back to all the summits that you did, but let's go back to Antarctica. I want to know how someone actually prepares for this because like you said, a lot of people don't accomplish it. Some people die out there. So how do you train and prepare for this? Yeah. So no one had ever completed this crossing before me successfully, and no one has ever completed it since. Um, so there's not like a blueprint for it. Um, the other guy who I was racing, he finished a few days after me. Um, so he had completed, but no, nobody else has ever been able to successfully complete this crossing in history. So I say that because not to say like, Oh, wow, I'm so, so great. I did this thing. It's more so to say like, there's no blueprint. Right. So when I'm thinking about preparing for this, some of my other world records are me doing something faster than anyone has ever done. So climbing a series of mountains faster than anyone's done, but somebody did it before me. So I can kind of look at what they did, how they did it and try to like optimize it a little bit better. But in the case of the Antarctic crossing, what was interesting was it wasn't just a world record, but it was a world first, you know, had never been accomplished before in history. So there's no way to look around and be like, well, like how did that guy do it? Or how did she do it? Whatever. So uh, to me, that's an interesting puzzle. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me was nutrition, actually. Um, mm. And so I, I looked at it and I thought, okay, polar explorers for 100 years have been eating the same thing. You know, it's so cold out there that you're burning so much fat. They need to have f- high fat foods. Um, and fat is actually the most calorie dense um, form of calories. It's about nine calories per gram versus three or four calories per gram for proteins and carbohydrates. So with weight being in my sled, being the limiting factor, that was an important thing to consider. But people were eating, you know, salami and uh, cheese and thing called pemmican, which is like kind of like bacon fat and things like that. And it's not that I was necessarily fully adverse to that. I was just thinking like, no, has anybody not thought through this in a hundred years? Like, we know so much more about the human body and, you know, the way that we absorb calories. So I actually spent about a year in a food science lab studying my body and the way that my body, you know, absorbs nutrients under stress, et cetera, took, you know, thousands of data points on my blood and stress tests and et cetera, and ultimately came up with built this custom bar. We called it the column bar. It was like a, you know, one of one, one off thing, um, very high calorie because where I needed high calories. Um, and it was, uh, all plant-based actually, um, no, no animal protein. So it was basically coconut oil and nuts and seeds and pea protein and a number of different, uh, 
supplements, the whole food supplements ground up in there. And that's actually what I ate the entire time. And it's funny because the other guy, Captain Lou found out that I had done all this, like, you know, science stuff to think about my food ahead of time. And at the start line, he was kind of making fun of me. He was like, Oh, American. Uh, I think I know it works. Like people have been eating the same thing in Antarctica for like, you know, so many years, like I've done big expeditions, like it just fine. And I think that was certainly one of the things that made the difference for me, uh, towards the back half. I still lost a ton of weight. I couldn't have enough calories. My body was absorbing these calories really well. And he, him and I have actually remained friends afterwards after the, you know, subsided the intensity of the competition. And he called me up a couple of years ago. He says, Colin, I'm going back down to Antarctica to do this other project. He's like, you have that recipe for those bars? Cause, uh, that seemed to work pretty well. So, you know, that was one of the things obviously training my body, but more than anything, like I said before, you know, training my mind, um, there's no way to be able to spend 54 days alone in this intense, intense environment, um, without having trained your mind in a significant way. Um, there's a couple of things that I've done over the years that, you know, I didn't know at the time were necessarily training and preparing me, but I've done these silent meditation retreats called Vipassana meditation. So 10 days of silence, no reading, no writing, no eye contact. And I've repeated that a number of times throughout my life. And, I didn't, again, I, I started doing that long before I ever dreamed of this Antarctica project, but of a way to sort of tap into my inner spirit, my self-awareness, um, my own body and mind. And that has been a really, really powerful practice for me. And, you know, I'd love, love to share with your audience, you know, kind of what my newest book is about the 12 hour walk, because at its core, it's an, it's an exercise. It's a, it's a call to action for people to tap into their own minds, uh, not with 10 days, but with a single day uh, alone in their own mind and seeing the really positive benefits of that, but certainly preparing my mind and body in those ways and figuring out the nutrition were some of the ways to, uh, kind of figure out how to prepare for an expedition like this that no one had ever accomplished before. That's incredible. I love hearing that it was an all whole food bar that you ate out there and really relied on good whole foods and nutrition, things like that. And I love that you had to prepare your mind, that you had to train your mind, that this wasn't just like, oh, okay, we're going to go out there and do it, that you spent years training your mind to be alone and be out there. I have a question though for you. Well, two questions. One, were you ever afraid out there and what did you do? And two, did you ever, besides that first time of wanting to give up, did you want to give up? Oh yeah. I was afraid constantly and I wanted to give up almost every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not like it just got easy all of a sudden. Um, you know, being alone is a really challenging thing. You know, it's, it's one of the things that as humans, you know, we are very social uh, beings and to be alone for so long, it's very, very difficult, you know, particularly because you have nothing to balance off of, you know, you're, you, you're going slower one day and you can't just say to somebody else, like, is the snow deeper or am I actually breaking down? You know, there's so many times in my own mind where I would get confused or lost in these mind and my own thoughts. There was one day, 40 days in, I had passed Captain Lou on day six. And every day I was in this intense race. I would look over my shoulder, like I was going to see him, but I hadn't seen him since the sixth day. Uh, obviously it's Antarctica is so vast that the odds you're actually seeing him is really low. Even if he was in front of me or behind me, but it's like, Oh my God, is he, is he going to catch me? Cause I'm like trying to become the first. Right. I called Jenna on day 40 and I said, I got a, a question for you. I need you to just like, tell me the answer. And she's like, uh, sure. What's up. And I was like, is captain Lou real? Like, is there another guy out here? She's like, what? 
And I was like, yeah. Cause like every morning I wake up and I look over my shoulder, like there's this guy chasing me. Like, is there actually a guy out here? Or did I create in my own head, a British soldier that's like chasing after me to like get me out of bed every single day and out of my warm sleeping bag. And she's like, yeah, he's real. Like <laughs> didn't that's let funny. me dwell on that like thought for too long. But yeah, I mean, it, it's intense out there. Like I said, people have died attempting this crossing. You know, there was times when, you know, I was, I was hungry. I was scared, you know, times when I was setting up my tent. Um, if I didn't, if I let go of my tent, didn't like tie one knot perfectly well, it would fly away. As one point, I almost lost my tent in a massive storm, just gone. And I'd be alone in Antarctica, no shelter, no hope of rescue. Um, so yeah, the stakes really every single moment were extremely, extremely heightened throughout that journey. So did you have your satellite phone to call in case you needed rescuing? So I had my satellite phone with me, but it's not as simple as just calling and being rescued. So basically there's large parts of Antarctica that are covered in crevasses. So even if you were able to make a phone call, um, they might say, oh, the closest place I can land to you is 200 miles away from there. And it's going to take five or six days for someone to even approach to where you might be found. So at that point, obviously, if you have no tent, like you'll be dead, you'd be dead in a few hours, let alone, you know, five or six days. And then the other thing is usually like I mentioning this massive storm. So there's, it's really windy in Antarctica, like 50, 60 mile per hour winds were common minus seven degrees wind chill. And what that would do is it blows around the ice and snow. So you're just in constant whiteout of just this, like, imagine just like the biggest snowstorm you've ever been just blowing constantly in your face. And it's like that for days and days and days. And I'm out there walking 12 hours per day, pulling my sled in this, these conditions. And, uh, the, so again, in that conditions, like I could call, but they're like, yeah, we'll come maybe if you're not near crevasses and only when there's not a whiteout, because it's not like you can just like land a plane on the ice in the middle of Antarctica and it's like severe weather, which is it's most of the time, very severe. And so a lot, a lot, a lot of the time, including real, very real conversations that I had with the guys who were running the logistics on Antarctica, they were like, you can call us, but just so you know, like you're pretty much on your own. It's not like, it's not like an Uber, like, oh yeah, I'll see you in 15 minutes. <laughs> like, right. You know, so Yeah. So how does someone overcome their fear to go out and do something so scary? Yeah, I think that it, you know, is a, a belief in self. And of course, this expedition, as I said, is built on the back of, you know, 20, 30 years, I was 33 and I did it, I guess, you know, decades of high performance, decades of diving into my mind, you know, decade plus of doing these silent meditation retreats, pushing my body. At this point, I'd already set a few different world records in mountaineering and some of the most dangerous mountains in the world, et cetera. And so to me, you know, at this point in my life, when I did the Antarctica crossing, it was really a culmination of a life's work, right? This wasn't like something I just like snapped my fingers, like, oh, I should go try that, right? Like, again, I hadn't done anything like this before, but I had been building up to this throughout, you know, all sorts of things. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I think it's a good segue into talking about the 12 hour walk because it, it is, this is exactly what this, this book is about. Um, so I was pulling my sled every single day for 12 hours. That was my duration when I was out there. And that got me to the other side of the continent on quite literally my last bite of food. And as I mentioned, I had my ribs were sticking out, my hip bones were sticking out. You know, I was in really, really rough shape and just let my last bite of food gets me to cross on the 54th day. And those 12 hour days I had deleted my music, deleted my podcasts. I was in a pretty much alone in silence intentionally throughout that entire time. And it was difficult, but what happened is my body got weaker and weaker. My mind actually got stronger and stronger while I was out there. I found myself in these flow states, these meditative places in my mind, body, and soul. 
And so much so that towards the end of the journey, I started really connecting with what I call the power of infinite love. You know, I would be connected, just deeply connected to my wife and my family and the people that were supporting me and the kids we were working with a nonprofit. I just felt that this deep, positive, resonant energy in this stillness and silence, you know, some people might call that the universe or God or love, or whatever you want to, you know, whatever your viewpoint is, but really connected to this deep energetic spirit. Like literally my body was as weak as it's ever been, but my mind was carrying me forward in this sort of blissful flow state. And that's what got me to the end successfully. And when I got back from Antarctica, I really felt like I had discovered this mindset through these 12 hour days, this place that I could be in my mind that was so strong and so powerful. And to your question, you know, away from fear, I had really pushed aside, you know, all of these sort of limiting beliefs that I've had inside my brain over time. Like on that first day, like I'm not strong enough. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? You know, I hate being uncomfortable. Like these are common limiting beliefs that we all, you know, you know, battle in our own minds. Right. And I had found this place in my mind that was sort of beyond all of those things. Um, really cultivating that possible mindset of limitless possibilities. And for the next few years of my life, I was really able to carry on that mindset. You know, I, I set a couple other big world records. You know, I wrote a New York Times bestselling book and The Impossible First. I had a bunch of other financial success and businesses I created. You know, things were going really well for me. And then COVID hit. And then COVID hit. And mm -hmm everything was canceled. Everything I was doing was canceled. You know, book tour was canceled. My next expedition canceled all these sort of speaking engaged. I had canceled, canceled. And look, I don't think that my schedule being canceled was like the biggest of the world's problems. Like at this moment, there's much bigger problems, but just like many of us, you know, I found my life completely disrupted and I was sitting in my um, family's Jenna and I, my wife and I, and our dog were just uh, together in the small cabin. My family has on the Oregon coast. And that's where we spent the lockdown of the spring of 2020, you know, for several months there. And at one point, you know, I'm just sitting there like looking at the news every single day. Like I'm so worried, full of this, this mindset that I'd had crossing Antarctica completely dissipated. And all of a sudden I'm just full of you know, anxiety and fear. And I'm like, the, the borders are closing and this is happening in Italy. And what, what's going to happen to my parents, my grandparents, are people, you know, going to get sick, people are dying, you know, just all this moment swept up in this moment, right. That I think we all experienced to some degree. And at one point, Jenna looks over at me and she says, you know, Colin, you haven't changed out of your pajamas in the last like three or four days. You've been sitting on the couch, like doom scrolling your social media and then and your news feed. Like, are you okay? And I was like, man, I've never felt so bad. And so I thought back to myself, when was the last time I felt good? You know, when was the last time I felt, I actually felt, you know, calm. And it was in these 12 hour days in Antarctica, despite the challenge, despite the mm. hardship, despite how ridiculously out there I was, I actually found that. And so I said to Jenna, I was like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to kind of rekindle a little bit of that Antarctica and I'm going to walk out my front door tomorrow. I'm going to be gone all day. Don't wait, you know, don't wait for me. I'll, I'll be back home around dinner. Probably don't worry about me. She's like, yeah, sure. So I walk out my front door that day on the Oregon coast. So for a long walk, about 20 minutes in my phone buzzes in my pocket and a buddy of mine's texting me and I pick up my phone and I'm about to text him back. And I'm like, wait a second, like, I need to like text my friend back right now. Like I've been just doom scrolling my feed, my news, like texting everyone. And so I decided to put my phone on airplane mode. Phone goes on airplane mode and I keep walking. I ended up walking that day for 12 hours. I take breaks. I stop, but I'm in silence. I'm stillness, no music, no podcast, just me alone in my thoughts. And I get back to my front door around dinner time. My dog, Jack jumps up on my lap when I come back in the door. And then my wife, Jenna says to me, she goes, you're back. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you I was coming back, you know, around dinner time. And she goes, no, no. She leans in and she goes, you're back. 
you're back. You know, she could see that my spirit, my essence um, had returned and she was a hundred percent right. You know, that walk had really just that walk and really more than anything, the silence, the stillness had really reset me back to this mindset, this possible mindset away from this mindset of limiting beliefs and fear and anxiety and stress. But I didn't think this necessarily had broad applications when I did this. I thought, right, I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica by himself. I go for a long walk and I feel good. Like, great. But during COVID, as we, you know, most of us did, you know, I had friends, family members, colleagues, people in my inner circle who were also really struggling during this period of time. And I started just mentioning this to people. I was like, you know, take it or leave it. But I did this thing and I was like, doesn't matter how far you go, like take the whole day though, take 12 hours, take breaks, take rest, take food with you. I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles, but go on this walk. And before I knew it, it surprised me, you know, dozens of people that I knew started taking this walk. So much like my 77 year old mother-in-law says, I want to do this. And for her, the 12 hour walk was one time around the, her block, um, then sitting on her front porch, but maintaining her solitude, her stillness and silence and walking another time around her block, you know, for my ultra marathon, you know, friend, he did 45 miles or something like that in 12 hours, you know, walking as fast as he possibly could, but neither my mother-in-law nor him were doing the walk better than the other. And now that, you know, I've written this book and the book is really about mindset and overcoming limiting beliefs. Those ones I mentioned, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? Each chapter is broken down around one of those limiting beliefs, but at its core, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to take this 12 hour walk yourself. And at this point, I've had thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the world take this walk. I think 40 different countries, every continent, people have done this walk every day or somewhere in the world, people are doing this 12 hour walk. And the feedback is just unanimously positive. People are like, it doesn't matter how far they went or whatever. Like, wow, like I needed that. Wow, I feel so reset. Wow, I found this place in my mind that I have never, you know, found before. Um, and it is having just really positive life-changing benefits. And I've set up, you know, it's completely free to do it, but um, out your front door, but there's a website, 12hourwalk.com where people can sign up, pick a date um, to become a, you know, an official finisher. And that's that accountability to actually picking a date, a moment in time, scheduling it, et cetera. And through that, I send you a series of emails of FAQs you know, how do I, where do I get water? Where do I get food? You know, where do I go to the bathroom? You know, basic questions that people have, but at its core, it's a simple, it's a very, very simple exercise, but there's really a lot of power in the simplicity. And I'm really passionate about spreading that and seeing all of the positive benefits that it's had on people all around the world is really a, a great joy for me. Well, what a great challenge. And I'm really excited to read this book because this can apply to anybody out there, all these different mindsets that we could benefit in life from. And so tell people where you can find this book. Yeah, the 12 hour walk. It is uh, everywhere books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, your local bookstore, the airport, et cetera. It's all, it's all over um, pretty much anywhere. Also, if you're, if you like audiobooks, um, you can get it on Audible. I narrate the audiobook as well. So if, uh, if you're not sick of my voice, yes, listen to this interview. Uh, you could get a little more of my voice on the audiobook. But yeah, and then uh, you can check out the 12 hourwalk.com, which gives all information on the walk. 12 hourwalk.com. That's the number one, two uh, hourwalk.com. Uh, give a brief breakdown of that. And that's where you can sign up to, you know, participate in the walk. And I actually have built an app as well. Um, it's kind of funny. The whole thing is about turning off your phone and, and having it on airplane mode, et cetera. But the app itself works on airplane mode, but it, it it's a timer, essentially 12 hour timer, but also tracks where you are. So people don't get lost. And afterwards you can be like, oh, wow. You know, people surprise themselves. Like I said, I literally does not matter how far you walk. That's not the point. The point is the stillness and silence, but people, even people, this is not like something you train for. I say to people like, do this tomorrow, you do this next week, you know, like listen to your body while you're out there, but people are always curious, how far did I walk? You know, people are, you know, 
typically walking 20, 25, 30 miles is, is while people who, you know, again, like I said, aren't necessarily like think of themselves as fit and active, but you commit to walking for 12 hours, even taking a lot of breaks, you can cover a lot of distance. One, one thing that I would, might be a good, good place to, as we wind down this conversation is because I know your audience is mothers, uh, a lot of them. And, you know, one very understandable limiting belief that I think that parenthood brings on, um, particularly uh, motherhood, depending on the st- you know, structure of your relationship and your family is I don't have enough time, right? You know, right. what a, what a hard, and, you know, I think it's probably the most difficult job anyone could have is uh, being a mother and, you know, nurturing and loving your children in all the ways that you want to. And it's a, as we know, it's a 24 hour a day, seven days a week uh, kind of job. And so I can I consistently hear, I bring that up because I do really consistently hear that feedback um, from a lot of mothers, which is, oh, I'd love to do the 12 hour walk, but I can't fill in the blank of the limiting belief. I don't have enough time. And I'm of course, very empathetic and understanding of that, but I will offer that I've had a lot of mothers who have overcome that limiting belief. And I love to say, and are grateful that they did to find that day. I love to say that the 12 hour walk, the experience of the 12 hour walk begins in this moment. And what I mean by that is it begins in the moment that you're suggested this idea. You're hearing this for the first time listening to this podcast right now. And yes, the walk itself is very powerful, but right now in this moment, you can't help but ask yourself the question in your interior dialogue because you're being suggested this idea. Should I do this? Effectively, I'm holding up a mirror to you. I'm holding up a mirror to your own psyche. And what ends up happening, this is even for me, I do this walk every quarter. And even every time I'm planning my walk for quarter, even I'm the guy who invented this idea and thousands of people around the world have done it. I still go like, oh, is that the right day? I don't know. I have this other thing. And you just start bargaining with yourself. And I say that because this moment, this mirror that I'm holding up to you right now is is a powerful reflection. And be aware of the limiting beliefs that are popping up for you in your mind right now, whether that's, I don't have enough time, or I don't like being uncomfortable, or what if my feet hurt, or my family might judge me and think it's silly or stupid or whatever. And the book itself, again, like I said, breaks down all of those common limiting beliefs. But this is the moment. This is the moment that those limiting beliefs pop up. And why that's important to recognize what's happening right now in this moment is that most likely whatever limiting beliefs you're applying to the 12-hour walk are often the exact same limiting beliefs that are on loop in your brain in all sorts Mm -hmm. of other circumstances, the same limiting beliefs that are popping up in your mind over and over and over and over again throughout many things that are holding you back. But the 12-hour walk, why it's so powerful is the walk itself is powerful and locks a deep place in your mind. But it also is an opportunity to prove to yourself that you can overcome the limiting belief of right now. I don't have enough time for this. Well, here's the thing. You do have enough time to prioritize the things that are important to you. And self-care is not selfish. Self-care is selfless. You don't think you have enough time because you want to show up as the best mother, the best parent to be there for every single one of those moments. But what if I told you that doing this for yourself for 12 hours, yes, that one day, you're not going to be with your children that day. You get the babysitter, your spouse looks after the kids, whatever. But the next 364 days after that, you're going to show up more present, more self-aware, stronger as a better mother, as a better spouse, as a better colleague, et cetera. That time was so well spent and you have pushed back against that limiting belief. If I don't have enough time, it's, it turns out you do have enough time for the right things. 
and prioritizing yourself. So I offer that uh, for this audience specifically. And on all of the many, many mothers um, that have now completed this journey have all reflected back to me, wow, I needed that. And that has made me an even better mother and a better partner. Um, and I'm really grateful for that time to reflect and go inwards because as, as parents, it is hard to get a little bit of time to yourself. And we all know uh, you with six children, I can only imagine. Well, I love that challenge. And I love those thoughts that you just shared. I believe that a lot of people don't accomplish things in life due to two things, excuses and fear. And so this challenge, if they'll accomplish it, will show them that they can actually overcome a lot of these excuses, that these excuses are just that excuses. We can overcome those. And so that's like what this 12 hour walk teaches is you can do this. You can do something hard. You can overcome these excuses and do more in life. So I love that thought process. Before we wrap up, though, I do want to just talk to you really quick, though, about your other two world records that you have. Is that okay if we just share like five minutes on this? Okay. You have two amazing world records for completing the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits. Those two are incredible. Will you just share with my listeners what those are? Yeah. And those aren't the only other two, but we can oh, share. Oh, okay. Well, you uh, share all of them if you want real quick. Um, so yeah, I was the fastest person to complete the Explorers Grand Slam. So that's to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. So tallest in Asia is of course, Everest, Africa, Kilimanjaro, North America, Denali, et cetera. And then the Explorers Grand Slam includes all seven of those as well as completing expeditions to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Um, I completed all of those in a world record time of 139 days and also subsequently set the speed record for the seven summits themselves in 131 days. I also have the world record for something called the 50 high point. So I climbed the tallest mountain on each of the 50 U.S. states faster than anyone Mm -hmm. has ever done. So all 50 U.S. states in 21 days. So multiple states per day, a logistical masterpiece put on by Jenna uh, to get me to the top of all those peaks, mountain to mountain to mountain. I slept about two hours per night for 21 days straight going from places as far as Alaska to Hawaii to the East coast, then back and around. Wow. Um, and then, uh, most recently I, uh, did another world first. So, uh, it was world record, but also world first. I was the first person in history with a team of others, um, to row a boat across Drake passage. So Drake passage is the, um, stretch of ocean between the Southern tip of South America and Antarctica. It's widely considered the most dangerous ocean crossing in the world. It's about 750 miles of wide open ocean where there's, you know, 30, 40 foot swells regularly, a cruise ship sunk there not too long ago. Uh, I thought they say there's been 20,000 people have died in the Drake passage historically and shipwrecks and things like that. And we were the first pre first people ever to make that crossing in a tiny little 28 foot rowboat riding about two feet, uh, over, over the ocean. Um, and so, uh, I did that as well. So I've I've had a few adventures out there. Oh my goodness. We could do a whole hour show about that crossing. Actually, all of these accomplishments. I want to know what drives you to do this. Cause I know some listeners are going to just be like, Oh, he just has some huge amount of desire and drive to do these things. Yeah. For me, look, I, I think about, you know, the drive for me is more intrinsically versus extrinsically motivated. You know, I think about wanting to live a full life. You know, people ask me after my expeditions, Colin, uh, are you afraid of dying? And I definitely don't want to die. I've lost friends on expeditions and it's heartbreaking. It's the last thing in the world I'd ever want to do. But what I'm more afraid of is not fully living. And Mm. I've come to think about life on what I consider like sort of a scale of one to 10 
being, you know, one being our lowest, lowest moments in life, you know, those frozen tears in Antarctica or getting burned in the fire and being told I would never walk again normally. And 10 being our high highs, right? Uh, you know, 10 being, you know, sure, crossing Antarctica solo, but more importantly, you know, falling in love or the birth of your first child, right? These peak moments in life. And as I got to the end of Antarctica to use that, since we talked a lot about that and I was standing there at the end, that was a 10 for me. But I realized that I didn't get that 10 in spite of my ones or hedging against the ones or being afraid of feeling any of the ones. I got there because of the ones. I had so many ones along that journey of those 54 days to arrive at that 10. Think of childbirth, right? You are in pain, in agony, in fear. What's happening? This is so scary. You know, all the emotions that go through in that moment. And then someone places your baby on your chest for the very first time. And it is the highest highs high you've ever felt, right? The ones and the tens, they're connected. We don't get there, the tens in spite of their ones, but because of our ones. But unfortunately, in our modern society, too often people are afraid, I believe, of experiencing any ones or accepting any discomfort. And so people exist most commonly in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency, this place between four and six. You know, it's like you go to work every day. You don't love your job. You don't hate it. It pays the bills. It's just like a five every day, five, 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 five. Or, you know, some people are in relationships, you know, where it's, uh, you're, you're coexisting, you're co-parenting. It's not like it's toxic, abusive, but it's just like on autopilot, like it's five, 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 but they're so afraid of making a shift. They're so afraid of making a shift to have a little bit of that discomfort, a little bit of a one or a two. It's a silly metaphor, but I'll, I'll use it here, which is, you know, say you want to do a kitchen remodel and you're like, oh, I want a new kitchen, new appliances, new floors, new backsplash, like the whole deal. It's not like you snap your fingers and it's like perfect the next day. What's the first thing you do? You rip out the floors, you rip out the plumbing. It's annoying because you're like living through this remodel. There's a guy working in your house like all day long. It kind of sucks for a while. But that's how you get to that outcome, right? That's how you get to that, the finest product. And so again, it's a silly metaphor, but to say like, if you just stay at the status quo of five every single day, then I don't think you live the full tapestry of life. And so your question was, why do I do these things? I do these things because I think that life um, and growth comes outside of the comfort zone. And for me, uh, it's not the only way that I explore this, but in one of the mediums, I explore the full tapestry of the life experiences to literally go into the physical world and step out my comfort zone, not so that I can, you know, pat myself on the back for another world record, but so that I can push my body to these edges and learn about myself and come back as a better husband, a better father, a better, you know, human being on this planet and hopefully have positive impact in others. Out of all the things that you've just shared, that might have been my favorite because you can't experience the tens, the joys, those great joys without the great sorrows, the zeros, the ones. And so that just really resonated with me. And I love that thought. So thank you for sharing that. And I know other listeners will love that as well. And it's so true. I think so many of us just stay in that five or six, just in that complacency, you know, for years maybe even our whole life. And can you imagine if we all got out of that comfort zone, what this world would be? It would be incredible. It would be so many people reaching their potentials and doing, you know, maybe what they were sent to this earth to do. So 100%. thank you for sharing that. So I'm curious, are there any other huge adventures left out there for you to accomplish or have you done them all? 
I think there's always, uh, always adventures out there. I don't have anything on the immediate horizon, but, uh, there will always be more and more adventures in, in that way, as well as all, all of the other ways, um, that we can explore life. So, um, just a, a passionate, curious human being, and I'll continue to push and explore my, for my, uh, this human existence in many different ways. So possibly another world record somewhere. For sure. Love it. Well, we need to wrap up here with time. I could ask you so many questions. I could seriously just, I have so many questions about all your adventures, but what last little tip do you want to share with the listeners? I mean, there's so much. And this is, I say, this is not like it's, it's completely free. It's at your front door, but honestly take the 12 hour walk. It'll change your life in a really positive way. I have yet to meet the person who have done that, that has regretted it. So um, if you're curious about shaking things up a little bit, finding a deeper place in your mind, your body, your spirit, your psyche, I highly recommend it. You might experience a, a couple of ones or twos out there. Your feet might get tired, but I promise you when you get back to your front door, you'll be experiencing a 10 and be able to take the ripple effect of that 10 back into your daily life in a really positive positive and life-changing way. You know, I wish we had time just to talk about the science behind that because there is so much noise and clutter and commotion going on in everybody's life that I've been studying just like the energy that happens in that noisiness and commotion. And then the energy that happens in the silence and in the meditation. And if we had to time just to talk about the energy that would shift in your body, your spirit, things like that because of this walk. Yeah, we could talk for hours about the actual science and energy and everything that goes on in this walk. So I think that's an incredible challenge you've given people. And I'm excited to read your book to see your take on things. So thank you so much for being here today. I always close my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Love. I love it. Well, obviously you succeeded in life due to the love of your mother and your wife. So that is, you're a true example of living through love. Tell my listeners where they can find you. Yeah, I'm on uh, social media, most active on Instagram. Just my name at Colin O'Brady, website colinobrady.com. And then all things 12 hour walk or 12 hourwalk.com. Um, both of my books, the uh, my memoir, The Impossible First, can be found, um, and and the Twelve Hour Walk. Both books can be found, sort of anywhere. Books are sold online or in person or audible formats. Pretty pretty easy to find in all the ways. So uh, come say hello in one of those mediums, and uh, look forward to connecting with you all. And tell my listeners really quick what story The Impossible First is. Which adventure? Yeah, so The Impossible First, it's a New York Times bestselling memoir uh, about my life up through the Antarctica expeditions, but really focuses on the Antarctica expedition. But throughout it, um, I'm, I call it the way I wrote it, as I call it a braided memoir. So I go back all through my childhood and my relationship with my wife, my family and various things as I'm on the ice itself. Of course, my, I spent 54 days alone in silence. And so I had a lot of things to, to think about and to mine throughout sort of the inner journey, as well as not just the this intense race that's playing out on the ice. And so it's sort of a combination of both uh, and both books, the 12 hour walk and the impossible first I you know, So my highest feedback or praise that I've gotten on both of them is that people have said, you know, these books, you know, at their surface seem like they're about adventure and they both are through the told through the lens of the high, you know, intensity, heart pounding adventure. But they're like, they're like at their core, I think they're both just long love letters to your wife. So I take that as a high compliment and praise. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to read them, but also to have my teenage boys read them. I think they'll really uh, just learn a lot and learn about mindset. And you're an example to millions in the world. So thank you for 
being here today. Thank you for taking the time to share your story. And thank you for everything that you're doing out there. You are incredible. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.